everyone. Welcome to the Working Waterfronts podcast. What is a working waterfront? Well, for most of American history, the shoreline was a place of economy and commerce. Today, though, working waterfronts are changing before our very eyes. There is increasing pressure to convert wharves and harbors to coastal residency, resorts, and office spaces. This show is about exploring the economic, cultural, and recreational contributions working waterfronts provide for communities, regions, and the nation. Who am I and why do I care? My name is Ashley Venice, and I am a coastal hazards planner in Corpus Christi, Texas, a part of the Texas Sea Grant team at Texas A&M University. Texas Sea Grant is a collaboration between NOAA, the state of Texas, and universities across the state. There is 34 programs all over the country. Anywhere there's a coastline, there's a Sea Grant program. I came here after Hurricane Harvey to assist in the recovery effort and help communities that were essentially wiped off the face of the earth to rebuild and come back stronger. So I'm going to take you back a little to the end of August, beginning of September 2017. Hurricane Harvey made its way along the Texas coast and had a devastating impact on working waterfront communities throughout the state. And it was part of my job to help build these communities back. Not going to lie, I felt very overwhelmed. I felt alone in dealing with such a huge slate of complex issues. How could I help these communities maintain their strong ties to their historic businesses? You know, the mom and pop boat building shops that you see, the small fleet of shrimper boats that you see out in the docks. When there was a, such an intense pressure from big dollar investors, developers, and energy industry types, to take advantage of the depressed economy and buy them out. And then in walks the National Working Waterfront Network. Very early in my career, I was introduced to the National Working Waterfront Network at one of their symposiums that was held in Grand Rapids, Michigan, my home state. Shout out to my fellow Michiganders. At the symposium, I learned that I am not alone. There are so many other people like me around the American shoreline seeking to share their experiences and learn from one another with the common goal of revitalizing our nation's working waterfronts for generations to come. So it only made sense that the National Working Waterfront Network would partner with the American Shoreline Podcast Network to sponsor a show dedicated to this very idea. And as the new kid on the block, I, Ashley Venice, am here now as your humble host. In this episode, I'm going to talk with three working waterfront organizers from both the East and West Coasts. So we're going to take a little tour around the United States. First up, I will be chatting with Roland Lewis. Roland is the president and CEO of Waterfront Alliance in New York City. Under his leadership, the Waterfront Alliance has organized a powerful constituency, instituted new programs, helped create a new waterfront plan for the city of New York. And on top of all that, he helped the Waterfront Alliance become the leading waterfront policy organization in New York. From there, we're going to jump coast over to the West Coast and speak with John DeRay, 
John is a representative from the grassroots-grown Sausalita Working Waterfront Coalition. He advocates for the interest of those whose livelihoods are linked to the Marinship and its multifaceted evolution. And then we're going to go north to the state of Washington and chat with Deb Granger, a founding member of the Working Waterfront Coalition of Whatcom County. She is currently the interim program manager, and she has spent most of her life working on the waterfront and brings many years of experience from the seafood fishing sector and is currently developing its scholarship program for students interested in marine industry trades. And now, without further ado, over to New York City to speak with Roland Lewis. I just wanted to start out by asking you a little bit about um, the Waterfront Alliance. Ashley, the the Waterfront Alliance is an alliance of over 1,100 businesses and civic organizations around the New York, New Jersey Harbor that are uh, dedicated to creating a waterfront that is great for recreation, education, the working waterfront jobs, um, all sorts of uh, all facets that uh, people can use our, our waterfront. Um, uh, and, and more recently, also focusing on the idea of resiliency as we are a coastal city in a time of climate change. We've had a great run of success, uh, um, championing a lot of issues, uh, ferry transit, um, more access, and the preservation and even expansion of the working waterfront. What do you think is uh, some of the biggest uh, issues and pressures uh, working waterfronts are facing today? Well, I, I sometimes des- describe it as uh, three-dimensional, four-dimensional, maybe five-dimensional chess. Uh, you have, um, of course, uh, uh, the competition amongst themselves here in, uh, in New York, New Jersey Harbor, uh, competition with other harbors as we try to do the uh, job of uh, importing goods and, and, and keeping the flow of the economy going. And then you have uh, added pressures of um, sometimes regulation, often well-meaning, but often burdensome to these, uh, especially the smaller maritime operations. And, and then um, there's the constant real estate pressure, um, especially uh, as New York, New Jersey have grown. Every gold, uh, I'm sorry, every coast can be a gold coast. Um, you know, there's uh, there's uh, pressure to take over more and more of the waterfront for um, uh, residential purposes, or even encroach on it up, uh, upland, which makes uh, the operations, the necessary operations of a working waterfront, more and more difficult. So these folks that do uh, maintain these businesses and uh, we're, uh, keep our, our economy and, and our environment, we must always remember that the movement of goods um, uh, via water keeps many, many trucks off the road and uh, our, our air quality and other, other aspects of our life are, are improved by the working waterfront. That's a really great point. That's, I think, something that people don't often think about um, as far as having access to a working waterfront and how much it can help with uh, some of these issues we face with, uh, you know, changing climate, rising populations, all that. Um, you had mentioned earlier about some of the successes that you guys had. Um, would you mind telling us just a few, telling the audience just a few of those? Sure, Ashley. Well, there, a few come to mind. Uh, I live in Brooklyn, uh, which is part of Long Island, and uh, Queens included. Is about there are about five million of us that live on uh, east of Hudson uh, on this on this in this part of New York, um, the New York metropolitan region. 
And there's only one uh, stevedore, only one shipping facility uh, here. And there was a lot of pressure to convert that shipping facility to uh, condominiums and parks. Uh, and we have nothing against uh, that, but this this is a vital working waterfront. So we fought, along with many other advocates, with uh, uh, congressional leaders like uh, Congressman Jerry Nadler, uh, and we won to maintain it. And that that shipping facility now flourishes. It's uh, It's providing all sorts of goods to uh, the metropolitan area, fruits, vegetables, the pineapples we eat, uh, some of the beer we drink, um, now come uh, straight via water uh, and reduce the amount of uh, truck miles by, by millions actually uh, to uh, get those goods here. Uh, another, another area was the um, a wetland mitigation bank. Many of our maritime facilities have to imp- do improvements and often the, the environmental agency says, well, if you're going to do the improvement, you have to uh, make a, a, a some benefit, environmental benefit to compensate. We were able to work with the city of New York to create a, a wetland in Staten Island where they could pool their, um, uh, their money, do their improvements, and also at the same time improve this vital wetland in the middle of Staten Island. And a third one, which is more cutting edge in 21st century, uh, uh, Green New Deal-esque. Um, is uh, a, a large facility in Brooklyn that will become sort of a big hub for wind power as we're building large wind farms out in the Atlantic Ocean to provide clean energy. Uh, we, we were able to uh, work with the city and uh, some private entities to um, um, advocate for and create a, a great facility that will uh, help to create those and service those, providing lots of jobs and good clean energy. And I think most importantly, Ashley, we've been able to start to get regular people uh, to recognize the, the vital importance of, of the port and the maritime uh, industries that are part of New York Harbor, a large part of New York Harbor and large part of the economy. Um, I, I think, you know, we have a long way to go still. I don't think we're, we're there yet, but uh, it's on the radar of a lot of elected officials and more, more and more people that this is an important part environmentally and economically for New York and New Jersey and needs to be protected and grown. That's a really great point. Um, as you were talking, I was thinking of um, how you mentioned a congressman was uh, getting involved, or I think you said senator. Um, so have you found that in in the course of your work with the Waterfront Alliance that you've had a lot of um, support on the political side? Well, we've, we have had some, and we've cultivated more. And that's probably the, I mean, if you if you break what the Waterfront Alliance is, it's it's and the true great accomplishment of what we've done is create a constituency for the waterfront that is sort of embraces a lot of different ideas and tries to knit them together um, to uh, get the attention of elected officials. When you when I as I said in, earlier in the interview, we're over 1,100 businesses and civic organizations, and those uh, businesses and civic organizations have uh, hundreds of thousands of people involved with them. Um, and that's a lot of voters. So it's been uh, one of the, the, the key to our success is making sure elected officials are aware of that constituency, that they care for their waterfront, that they want things out of their waterfront. They want jobs, they want transportation, they want recreation, places to get to the water, um, and uh, that they, they need to deliver those things uh, just as they need to deliver safe streets and good schools uh, uh, the waterfront is a thing that um, is, is important to people. And I should say there are certain elected officials like Congressman Nadler and others 
who really do get it, um, get it in first bounce uh, and have been true uh, uh, allies and leaders, um, and many, many, uh, many elected officials. So some some are ahead of the curve, some are uh, climbing the curve, but we've been our job is to get more and more of those elected officials to uh, think and care about the waterfront and all its all its facets, including the working waterfront. That's excellent. I mean, I'm sure no easy task, but it sounds like you've got some good um, alliances on your side. Um, but uh, and I imagine as a part of that, it's really important to um, for the elected officials, maybe if it's takes a little more convincing for, like you said, people to actually uh, realize and uh, know the importance of their working waterfronts. And when constituencies are aware of that, then they can, you know, put a little more pressure on the elected officials. Um, so in my work, I, I deal a lot with the the idea of resilience. And I know that has been growing the um, and become more... Um, was the word noticeable? It's become uh, people have re- um, been much more aware of it lately. Um, in your time with the Waterfront Alliance, um, would you say that that's been a slow progression, um, incorporating more um, resilient strategies and the idea of that into what you do, or is that something that just happened out, out of nowhere? Do you have? Uh, do you have any experience or thoughts on that? Sure, uh, lots actually. Uh, I, I came from the community development world. I was I, I ran Habitat for Humanity. I was sort of an, a, a, a big uh, Habitat for Humanity for New York City, and I was a, a true out of the box hire for this type of job as their first CEO. And very early on, a, a woman named Hillary Brown, a, a prominent architect in New York, heard a presentation. Uh, this is about twelve years ago from a, um, a leading uh, academic at Columbia University talking about what might happen if a storm surge hit New York, the damage that would happen, what the, the disruption would happen. And she was uh, someone I was relying on to give me information and help me start this organization. She came into my office, uh, which was then a closet at that time, and, uh, and uh, with her hair on fire and said, Roland, if you're not paying attention to resiliency and climate change and the threat of flooding and storm surge, and you're trying to establish a waterfront organization. Uh, you're not. It's, you're 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 not uh, paying attention. It won't be worth the, the, your policy papers. Everything won't be worth the paper it's written on. So I was um, smart enough to know how dumb I was at that moment and say, "All right, yes, ma'am. Um, we'll, we'll pay attention." So from a very early stage, we were thinking about resiliency. We invited the Dutch over uh, for a large conference um, in 2009 to talk about how they protect their country um, from the North Sea. And so when Sandy hit New York, um, we were shocked like everybody else, but we weren't surprised. And we, we sprung into action, helped the city to devise a set of principles that became part of the uh, Bloomberg administration's uh, recipe for uh, resiliency. Um, and then more, most recently, and we, then I'm sorry, another important thing, we, we developed something which we won an award for, and it's now taking off across the nation, certainly in the New York area, called the Waterfront Edge Design Guidelines, which is sort of like LEAD, if your listeners what LEAD is, the Leadership in Energy and uh, Design, um, sort of LEAD for the waterfront. Uh, and uh, it, it promotes resiliency, uh, ecology, and access. And uh, a lot of developers are now have been using that. We've 
we have about a dozen different uh, developments in New York that have used the, the, the wedge guidelines. But a couple of years ago, we we did a new uh, uh, exercise in strategic planning and that we brought that large alliance together and asked them what's the direction we need to go as we go forward, building on the successes we already have had. And uh, a loud cry came to us and said, listen, Waterfront Alliance, you've done a good job. Um, but we're still as vulnerable now, uh, this is about five or six years, as when Sandy hit. You need to use the clout you have, the expertise you can uh, leverage and move the ball forward. So we we launched uh, just recently, um, and but, but it's been a year and a half in the making, something called the Rise to Resilience campaign, which is to impel our elected leaders to do more, much more, do it much smarter and do it faster to uh, uh, meet the challenge of sea level rise for this coastal city. Um, I'm very excited about the progress we're making where there's federal legislation already that reflects some of the planks of that uh, of this campaign. We have over a hundred partners that have signed on uh, of all stripes, um, and uh, there's also a state bond act that we're championing that will hopefully pass in the fall. So uh, as uh, the Waterfront Alliance moves forward, I pay attention to the Rise to Resilience campaign, and uh, hopefully it'll make change here in the New York New Jersey Harbor and can be replicated elsewhere around the nation. That's that's much more than I was expecting. And I think that's that's a woman after my own heart. I think some of us need that person to come in and demand that we pay attention. Um, that's really interesting, um, the little tidbit about holding um, a huge um, collaboration with the, the Dutch people and learning more about what they're doing over there. I, I spent some time over there uh, studying flooding and their their um, strategies. And I know one thing they talk about is that they're transitioning away from hardening their shorelines and hardening everything against the water and more trying to move into accepting that water is a natural part of their life and letting it in. And after Sandy and all these things that you saw, would you say that there is a little bit more of that transition from hardening structures into maybe understanding how our place on the coast uh, can be better balanced with the natural forces that exist there? Well, yes. And I'll tell you one quick story. When I, we had the Dutch over here, and I, I also had the uh, privilege of going there a couple times to learn, as you did, about the living with the water uh, ethos that they've they've adopted over the years, and and uh, uh, but I, I part of the, uh, our that conference with the Dutch, I had um, the head Pete Dirk, who is the head of Arcadis, a large Dutch um, uh, firm, and again I was relatively new and just asking basic questions, and I asked Mr. Dirk, uh, do you think we should build a large gate um, to protect New York as you've done in Rotterdam and other other places? to um, protect us from the uh, uh, rising tide. And this, that's their business. Arcadis has designed large facilities like that in London and elsewhere. And he, he surprised me. He said, yeah, Roland, maybe, but the, it's the last thing you do, not the first thing you do. Um, so when we, when Sandy had hit, we actually, that we, so we learned from that. And uh, that was, that was the ethos we, we adopted and the way we influenced uh, the city's policy in their, um, uh, strategy to, for re resilience and rebuilding. That was the name of it. The Bloomberg administration did post Sandy. And I think that, that I, those ideas of 
uh, living with the water and not trying to harden everything. That said, um, there are still many who think a, a large gate, if you're familiar with the New York area, from Sandy Hook uh, in New Jersey to Breezy Point on Long Island is um, a, a necessary way to to, uh, to protect the harbor. So there's still debate about it, but I, I'm, I'm more in that uh, living with the water and also understanding that there is um, a wi wide variety of, of uh, uh, topographies and um, waterfronts in this in the in the region, um, and uh, we need to recognize there's different solutions for the 520 miles of New York City waterfront and the additional 200 miles of New Jersey waterfront. Um, many many solutions. So be, being that smarter part about that formula is is is, is uh, adapting strategies that work in different areas in different ways. Yeah, I I definitely would agree with that and. Like you said, we still have a long way to go. I know um, I'm here down in Texas in Corpus Christi, but I know in the Houston area where they're also looking at a huge uh, swinging gate, such as what they have in the Netherlands to protect the Houston area. And But we also have a lot of natural land such as you, um, as you do up there. So it's, it's gonna be a balancing act for sure. Um, well, I really appreciate you joining us today and talking about the Waterfront Alliance and everything you do. Um, before I let you go, is there just anything else you wanted to add to the already great information you've given us? Uh, just the, uh, you know, the, I think, again, just repeating a little bit, but the, the two, there are many great accomplishments we've, we've done in terms of providing more access, protecting the working waterfront, et cetera. You know, these physical things that the ferry services that now run, run around New York, we've helped to expand, et cetera. But I think the, the true uh, accomplishment of, of the Waterfront Alliance that I'm most proud of as, as I move on to another challenge uh, is uh, number one, creating that constituency, making sure that people join together, that it's community organizing. <laughs> like our former president Obama once uh, did as a prophet before he became a politician, creating a community that uh, will live with each other, understand those differences, but can knows that there's their strength in numbers. And as you do that, use that clout. And by doing so, change the psychology of, of, of the area to be a waterfront town, uh, like uh, San Francisco or Chicago, places where people really own that uh, shoreline and, and love it. I think we, we're, we're making steps in our area to do that. Um, and uh, and then the last thing, of course, as we've been discussing pretty, I think, thoroughly, recognizing the world is changing and um, all, all, all these coastal cities uh, need to take, uh, at, you know, we're, we're, as we live through COVID and, and, the, and the challenge of, of that global challenge, uh, we can't forget the other global challenge of, uh, uh, sea level rise and climate change uh, and how it's going to have huge effects and how we have to adapt to the, the, that reality. So I'll just close with that, Ashley. And my pleasure to talk to you. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Rowan. It has been a great pleasure talking to you today. You've given me a lot to think about. I've just started in my career. So it's good to know um, that there's been a long history of this happening already. And I'm looking forward to working more on this and I wish you the best in your future endeavors and you're uh, moving on to something new. It's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you. Next up, 
I speak with John DeRay out in the beautiful San Francisco Bay Area. Welcome, John. Thank you for joining me today. Hi, Ashley. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. I just wanted to start out by asking you to tell us a little bit about the Salsalito Working Waterfront Coalition and your role within the organization. Sure. Um, So the Sausalito Working Waterfront Coalition was formed in late 2018. It's basically a loosely organized group of stakeholders who have a common goal in mind, which is to protect our working waterfront. Um, we, we don't uh, have any real formal structure. Um, however, more recently, we uh, have decided to create a 501c4 organization and create more of a structure and a board, etc. Um, my role has just been as one of the uh, members of this coalition. Um, I got involved in it because Sausalito is going through its general plan process, which is a process that happens every 20 years in every California city where they plan for all aspects of the future, um, including the waterfront, but every other aspect as well. So I uh, was uh, appointed to the general plan advisory committee and we have no power It's just an advisory committee to the city council. And we have five city council members who have the power and um, make the um, ordinances that uh, govern the city. Um, And again, this is done every 20 years and we're in that process now. Um, We're actually uh, towards the end of the process. Um, So, when, when I got involved in the general plan, um, I heard some things uh, that surprised me. Um, this is a 13-member committee, and I heard some committee members who said things like, well, you know, the maritime industry is really um, sort of dying off pretty significantly um, in Sausalito. And... Um, In our waterfront, we also have a very large industrial segment. Um, And I heard, uh, well, the industrial segment of our community is also, uh, the words used were just a mirage. So I'd only been in Sausalito for about eight years, and there's many old timers who've been there for a long time, their whole lives. So when I heard that, it just didn't sound right to me. So I started walking up and down the waterfront, and our waterfront has a specific name. It's called the Marin Ship, and I'll talk about that later. Um, but I started walking up and down the Marin Ship. It's about 200 acres, and got to talking to some people. And what I found out was not only was our maritime uh, industry uh, businesses uh, not dying, they were actually flourishing. And the same went for our industrial area. Um, The third segment that uh, is happening down in the waterfront area is we have a very long legacy of an artist community down there. And that was also thriving. 
So when I heard this uh, narrative in these meetings that I would go to at City Hall, I, I got a little worried and I started talking to the people that I had met and they got worried. And what they told me was, well, this happens about every 10 to 20 years. Um, there is a, a gentrification push that happens and we have to rise up and do something about it every num- you know, so many years. So here we are again. And um, every time it happens, we lose a little bit more of the waterfront and a little bit more of our culture and a little bit uh, more of, of sort of the legacy that Sausalito is. And, you know, most people know of Sausalito as a very much a tourist area and we, we're flooded with tourists uh, often. But there is this, this segment of the economy in Sausalito that is uh, driven by these other uses by the maritime, by the industrial uses, and by our artists. So that's kind of the background. And I can go more into the history of Sausalito because it's quite interesting and it kind of leads us to where it is today. Wow. (laughs) Thank you, John. Um, As you mentioned earlier, uh, the coalition is just really getting on a roll. It it sounds like it started in the late 2018. Um, As you guys are thinking about this plan, um, do you have specific visions or goals that you'd like to see included in the plan for the future of the waterfront? Yes, we do. When this uh, little group started, one thing we all agreed on is we can't be the group that says no, right? We can't say, oh, you can't touch it down there. And nobody really wants to say that. Although, I guess you could say our opponents like to call us the no people, okay? But that's not what we're about. As a matter of fact, um, we do have a a plan forward. And um, a a part of the plan is, um, you know, our uses, our industrial maritime and artist uses have been ignored over the years. And we we really want to see those uses and, and development expanded for those uses. So we have no problem with um, you know new development, but it should honor those uses. Now, besides that, looking into the future, there's there's two other um, areas where we really think the marine ship should focus because it's just a natural fit. One of them is um, sea level rise uh, technology. So environmental challenges like sea level rise, water quality, estuary technologies, and other uh, resiliency um, technologies for our community. Um, we are uh, uh, exposed to sea level rise in the marine ship. And... Um, we, we're very aware of that, um, and so uh, we we are uh, putting a lot of effort into addressing that, bringing experts and um, coming up uh, with a plan to um, sort of create an innovation, an incubation incubation zone for 
fabrication of, of uh, uh, I guess, technologies that, that would um, mitigate sea level rise risks. So there are, there are uh, companies around the Bay Area who are, who are um, studying uh, solutions and ways to address these problems, and they have nowhere to fabricate their designs. Well, not only does uh, marine ship have obviously access to the bay, right on the bay, um, but we also have a legacy of these fabrication businesses around here and these um, innovative uh, industrial businesses. There, there's a company that um, uh, makes uh, uh, sonar equipment down here, and um, there are other very high technology companies uh, in here. There's quite an ecosystem in the marineship of these fabrication technologies, uh, both within the maritime area as well as other areas, medical technology, um, electronics. And so, you know, the, the vision and the goal is to create a, a way forward where um, uh, companies can come in to the marine ship and have a place where they can test uh, their prototype ideas and um, use the facilities that are here and the expertise in fabrication that is here. And it's been developed over decades um, to, to create something um, uh, to, to, to mitigate these risks. Um, so that's another goal. And then the last goal is um, there has always been in the marine ship um, this educational component. So there are um, small groups of educational, um, you know, kids programs, summer programs, some after school programs. Um, it could be in uh, shipbuilding. There's a summer program for shipbuilding for kids at a place called Spalding, uh, which is a maritime center. Um, there's a, a gentleman who um, does a seminar for kids um, in robotics. Um, we have another uh, company called Marin Made that teaches little girls how to weld, 10 to 12 years old. So there's little welding stations. It's really kind of cool to see that. Um and the biggest one we have, and this is this is really a, a, the pride of Sausalito, is called um, Call of the Sea. Call of the Sea is a educational program for kids um, that uh, has been around since the eighties. But in two thousand thirteen, something amazing happened. The gentleman who um, runs that program, his name is Alan Olson. He, um, he organized an effort to build a tall ship in Sausalito. It's called the Matthew Turner. It's the first tall ship that was built in the uh, Bay Area in 80 years. So it's 100 feet long. It's got two huge uh, masts. And when you look at it, it looks like a schooner from you know, 100 years ago. It's really amazing. Um, it was just completed, and last week it got its Coast Guard uh, certification. And if it wasn't for COVID, uh, they'd be taking kids out on that already, but uh, obviously there's a delay. And the whole purpose of that ship is uh, to give kids uh, an experience on the sea. 
and, and show them that, you know, obviously there, there, there's uh, a lot of opportunity out there for them and it's very inspirational. So we're very proud of that. And, um, you know, Sausalito was able to, to put that together and, and build that ship and launch it a few years ago and, and then uh, fit it with its rigging. And it's really a source of pride for us. So anyway, we, we have all these educational um, uh, initiatives uh, around town. And we also think that we should evolve that into vocational opportunities for our young people around here. Um, both in this community and other communities um, around the Bay Area, um, welding classes for um, uh, building skills for new careers. We have a lot of retirees here who can share a lot of uh, their knowledge with with people. So it's it's a vision that we have uh, going forward for the Marin ship that it would be a great place to sort of transfer the knowledge of the experts in the Marin ship to the young people in our community and inspire them. You know, not everybody is 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 um, really fit uh, or, or willing to go to college. Um, there is uh, another way uh, forward to get a great job and a great career, and that's in the trades. And um, we want to really make that a viable option for uh, for young people. Wow, um, I. Uh... I have to say, I really wish growing up that I would have had access to a welding program to teach me as a young as a young lady. That sounds really great. I um, was thinking about exploring, you know, all the strategies that you guys are undertaking to protect the working waterfront, and you really just laid it all out there for me. Um, so I know you'd mentioned earlier um, about the plan and about having. Um, not feeling or seeing the support that you would like to see from council members. And um, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on what, uh, if anything, um, people in Sausalito uh, can do to really try and push that narrative a little more with them and, and really show that the the waterfront and the working aspect of it is is still important and s- still will still be important in the future. Um, do you have any thoughts on you know what can be done to really uh, sway their opinions in another way? Well, um, you know the the first uh, goal when we created the coalition was we we realized that we needed to educate people. Um, as to what they have in their backyard and, and what they're about to lose if they don't really, um, you know, get organized a little bit and do something about it. Um, but I have to say, um, even with our efforts, uh, obviously we were uh, constrained with funding and, and things like that. You know, I would say most people in Sausalito do not realize what goes on down there. So we created a website, we created a Facebook page, we created a booklet. Um, but it's still difficult to, to get the word out to people. So, um, I think we, we continue to, to, uh, have ideas and and try things. And, uh, we're always encouraging people to write to city council. Um, and they've done that, um, go to meetings and they've done that. And now, you know, we've been, uh, having these zoom meetings, they've been to those, but, um, it, to this point, it, it hasn't worked. You know, 
we, we get a lot of agreement that it's you know it's very worthwhile. We don't want to we don't want to affect anything. We want to uh, you know keep uh, our maritime and industrial. We love it. We love our artists. That's what we hear from council members. But the action to um, preserve those uses and to protect those uses and and to not add new uses, we don't hear that. And when you think about the new uses, what you have to realize is, you know, zoning is the mechanism by which you you protect these uses. Think about what would happen to an artist space if he had to compete for an office space with a hedge fund or with a or with a law office. Okay, so um, they want to include new uses in the marineship, but we don't know what those new uses will be. And by the way, you know, as I said, we have all this office space that was converted from industrial over the decades. Long term, there's been a 20% vacancy rate in in uh, Sausalito, as well as in our county, um, for office space. And industrial space, the vacancy rate has always hovered between 1% and 2%. So sort of doesn't make sense, but unfortunately, there's a handful of, of uh, property owners that own a big part of, of what's down there. And they have a lot of political power, apparently. Um, so that's something that, that, you know, we're also trying to, to address. Um, I think we made some headway uh, during COVID because during COVID, we were able to, um, uh, a group of the industrial companies um, and medical company got, got together and said, hey, you know, we've got a problem here. What can we do uh, to help our community? And so um, the Marin ship, uh, which was actually very active and had continues to be active during COVID because everybody kind of works in a shop or, you know, they, nobody works next to each other. Um even the boat yards, you know, the, when they're they're repairing the boats, you're not next to each other. You're outside, so um, the risks are low, and and uh, uh, most of the businesses have continued. Now the downtown and and retail and tourist sections completely shut down. Hotels, obviously, that's that's shut down. But um, they they continue to remain active, and a decision was made to look at two ways to help. Um, the first one was to um, see if one of our industrial companies, which had the permitting that could produce hand sanitizer. So we produced for our community 55 gallons of hand sanitizer and distributed it for free. You just come down and we fill up your little container with hand sanitizer. And we did that um, basically till we ran out, which was about three or four weeks or four or five weeks. So um, that was a good program. But the main thing that we did was uh, we have uh, a couple of industrial companies that have um, a uh, laser cutter and another one that has a water jet metal cutter. So they were able to retool and produce uh, for the local hospitals, local and national hospitals, face shields, plastic face shields. Coca-Cola um, donated a huge, uh, I think it was two ton roll of plastic. And 
we produced in the Marine ship, I think, 15,000 face shields, plastic face shields that we gave away for free to, again, local hospitals, um, senior centers, as well as national hospitals. And and, and, uh, whoever uh, reached out to us, we were able to get them these uh, these face shields, including... um, I heard uh, recently that we gave some to the uh, some group at the Navajo Nation, so it was really sort of wide stretching and and um, so this is the kind of community that we have down there. They're able to sort of turn on a dime in the same way they helped out during World War II. You know, there was a need and the people down there stepped up, and that's the kind of community it is down there. And this is what's at risk. Wow, John, you are blowing my mind right now. That is some amazing work. It really sounds like you've got some innovative things happening there that uh, would be helpful all around the country. Um, As far as raising awareness, I'm sure being on a podcast doesn't hurt as well. So hopefully we can get that out there. Um, Thank you so much for your time. Before I let you go, um, I'm just wondering if there's anything else you wanted to add either um, for people, if they were to take away just one thing from this conversation about working waterfronts, what what would you hope that they would they would remember? Um, well, I, I guess uh, I would want to just stress the idea that, um, as you know, across the nation, these working waterfronts are being gentrified away. Um, And our city hired a consultant recently to come up with their plan for the Marin ship. And um, they talked about uh, industrial, growing the industrial, um, mixed use industrial is what they were talking about. And when we looked into it a little bit more, it was basically, you know, event space and restaurant space inside industrial buildings. So a lot of people don't get it. And um, you have to realize that as long as you have boats and as long as you have a waterfront and and, uh, uses on that waterfront, you need services and you need technologies. And and every time one of these shipyards closes or these waterfronts are, are turned into something else, you know, the value of the remaining waterfronts uh, working waterfronts uh, um, goes up. So um, our waterfront is very valuable, um, but we are poised to lose it. Um, and it's it's a struggle every day. Um, we just heard yesterday that one of our industrial companies uh, got its uh, eviction notice. He found somebody to to um, pay a, a much higher uh, rent for the space. So this is what we face every day. And um, I just hope more people would get involved and realize that the waterfronts aren't always about going down there to have a drink and party. You know, a lot of people who make their careers down there and, uh, and you know, it, it's a valuable space and uh, people would appreciate their support down at the working waterfronts. Thank you. That's really well said, John. Thank you so much. It has been a pleasure talking to you. I've learned so much. Uh, Ashley, thank you very much. Can I plug our um, 
Facebook page and our uh, website? Certainly. So the website is SausalitoWorkingWaterfront.org. And the Facebook page is just Sausalito Working Waterfront. Excellent. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for your time. We appreciate it. And uh, Sausalito thanks you. So now we're going to go a little north to Washington, a region on the coast right before you reach Canada to talk about the collaborative approaches to preserving marine trades properties in Whatcom County. Welcome to the show, Deb Granger from the Working Waterfront Coalition of Whatcom County. It's wonderful to have you on. Welcome, Deb. Thank you, Ashley. It's great to be here. So I uh, have usually started these out by just trying to get a sense of your region and your organization. So would you like to tell me a little bit about the Working Waterfront Coalition of Whatcom County? Sure. We were formed about um, five and a half years ago. And, and currently we have, we're a membership group and we currently have over 130 members in six sectors within the, the maritime sector. Um, and it's, we're, we're pretty active and, um, we were formed initially to address this, the same concern that theme I'm hearing is um, as waterfronts were redeveloped around the nation and specifically in our region, the fear was that there would be um, gentrification type of development, condominiums and so on, what we call condominium creep, and <clears throat> they would potentially oust those businesses that have been producing living wage jobs for many, many years, and um, they would be zoned zoned out. So through a process of really solid foundational work, our organization spent months developing our board, our bylaws, our um, budget, you know, the good, good, hard work that needs to go into making sure that we had representative decision making at the at the um, forefront of everything we do. We have been successful. That's good to hear. That's excellent. Um, would you mind uh, sharing at what some of those successes are and maybe looking to the future what you you still hope to accomplish? Sure. <clears throat> One of our major goals, we set up mission and goals and <clears throat> along with, you know, all the good foundational aspects. Um, one of them was uh, to, to, um, to ensure that we had a voice at the table as decisions were being made. And so that we're not just reacting to things. And so working, one of our um, board members said, well, we will be the port of Bellingham's um, conscious conscience sorry and you know when they're doing supportive things and things that work well for us we will be there to um, praise them and work with them but we'll also make sure when there's um, decisions being made that aren't in the waterfronts benefit that we'll be there also advocating for that and we so we didn't go in with um, bombastic, 
tones. We went in with collaborative, cooperative, and professional with all of our um, interactions with the, the port management and staff and leadership. And so we have, um, we co-sponsored a, an economic impact report with um, the port and working with our local university here, their economic and business center, developed a study that documented that the maritime sector in Whatcom County is produces over 6,000 jobs and, <clears throat> excuse me, is um, 7% of our region's jobs, which surprised everybody. And, um, <clears throat> and so that gave us the, the credence or the credibility. And then, um, so working off of that platform, we um, are, the port has actually asked us to come alongside them with them and work on um, working on their comprehensive scheme of harbor improvements, they call it. We have different sections, geographic regions that every five years, the goals and the land use of that area is supposed to be reviewed and and re, um, reworked and what, what are the goals for that area or the uses of that area. And so we're working side by side with them and we co-present at port commission meetings. Um, that's a real coup. And um, we also have developed, um, w working with the port, interpretive signs, our harbors, you know, we have a thriving commercials, fishing sector and different aspects of it, but people don't know what's down there. So we worked with the port to set up interpretive signage in one of the harbors, and we're going to expand that to the other harbors as well. Yeah, let's let's jump right into that. What do you guys have, you know, looking forward? What are you guys uh, thinking about? Well, we are we are definitely growing. And um, one of the other successes I should mention is that we have taken an active role in in um, assisting our members with the reactions and the resources for COVID. So that, you know, I'm constantly sharing information with them about latest information. And actually in the state of Washington, um, through the CARES Act, the fisheries portion of that, you know, there was $300 million de um, designated for fisheries and aquaculture support back in March. But then getting that out to the local states has been a challenge so we are right at the forefront of trying to advocate that that $50 million given to the state of Washington is set up appropriately to support our people, that it's not excluding them the way that they set it up. So that's one thing. But in the future, what we realized is our um, members are facing what is sort of nationally called the silver tsunami or the graying of the fleet. And we have many thriving businesses that whose owners are saying, darn, sometime I'd like to retire, but I'm not sure who could take this over. And I want to, you know, it's a thriving business. I want to continue this. So it's always, always a challenge to promote your sector in a way that draws young people in or people in that think that it's a, a viable 
and vital economic engine that it is. So we are setting up an apprentice apprenticeship program, um, Marine Service Technician Apprenticeship Program. We're really excited about this. We've had to delay the start of this to September of 2021, but this is a big effort and it's a statewide, I mean, it, we're working with state um, leaders and authorities to make sure this is done right and done well and is able to um, really support that workforce development piece. We also have, um, we launched a, what we called a celebration dinner a few uh, years ago, and we, we actually raised money through that. So and, and it surprised us. Part of the benefit that we have is we have great seafood to offer people and people are hungry for that. So we had fabulous food and it was a Valentine's dinner and, you know, seafood is heart food. So we celebrated all of that. And um, the money that we raised, we supported students at our local technical college, three students with significant scholarships. And that was terrific. And we were, we're continuing that. Well, we also established the coalition, as you know, is an advocacy group. It's a trade association. It's a 501c6. So, and that's appropriate. However, we also wanted to support this education aspect. So we established a foundation and that's a C3, which then can be charitable deductions and so on for um, supporting the education and training aspect. But we're also really conscious of the maritime heritage and historical aspects of, of our sector. And the state of Washington just secured the a national maritime heritage trust area. So we're getting involved in that. I was trying to frantically write down as you were talking because there's so many to keep a track of. Uh, we, when we were talking to John DeRay in um, Sausalito, he works with the coalition there. He went into extensive detail about some youth programs that they were doing and all of that that's happening. And I love to hear that different regions are thinking about this graying of the fleet and how we need to address that. So in some of that, uh, building those programs and initiatives, um, I was trying to get the sense of, is any of them focusing on or, or gearing into or, or uh, focusing on the younger population? Um, I, I know you're doing some with the older and college age students, but is anything like youth programs or summer camps, something like that? Well, that's that's a new initiative that we're uh, that's definitely on our agendas at different meetings, but um, we don't have anything specific yet. However, with this apprenticeship um, possible or program that we're launching, um, there is in the state of Washington what's called a pre-apprenticeship program. So students 15, 16, 17 can participate in that, and that's super exciting. We've participated in local career fairs, and um, that's been really well received because I think, like I said, a lot of people perceive us as sort of the, a dying sector or <laughs> not really vital. And when we bring our young, successful entrepreneur um, 
you know, diesel power companies or um, boat charter, I mean, boat um, brokers that are dynamic and doing well, the students just, it's very much head turning. And we're hoping to do much more of that as we, as we get going. We're just five years old and we're, um, there's just a plethora of things we could be engaged in, but we haven't totally fleshed out the youth, um, the downward extension of all of this yet, but it will be soon. It sounds like it. I mean, five years and you you have already listed a lot of accomplishments. Um, I'm wondering, and you kind of alluded to this a little bit uh, after you talked about the economic impact report and the the results of that. Um, did you find that there was a shift in some of the conversation or at least some of support for the the waterfront and, and preserving its uses once it was realized just how important economically it was to the region? Absolutely. But it's a, it's a, um, that definitely, that report did, was sort of the fulcrum that um, allowed the port to definitely have a, a preservation. I mean, that information is throughout their website and their decision-making. But we have to continually tell this story. Um, I was at a conference in, back in February, and there was the you know different leaders of our county government at my table. And I mentioned this, and I said, we're kind of under the radar with, with this. And all of them turned to me and said, that is not known. Nobody knows that. That 7% rivals, we, in our county, we have a large, significant um, uh, fuel production. You know, we have ARCO and um, BP and, well, let's see here, BP and different um, refineries, basically. That 7% rivals that number. Um, I mean, there's, there's, more people working in the maritime sector than are working in that oil producing or oil refining sector. And that's not known. So we have a story to continue to tell and we're working on that, but that's, that's the challenge. (laughs) Yeah. A challenge faced by many for sure. And we appreciate you highlighting that to really make other regions feel like they're not alone. These are challenges everywhere. Um, I was wondering if you just could take a minute or two to just kind of, I'm trying to picture um, what really is Whatcom County and the, and the Port of Bellingham, right? Um, what are, what is that known for? What is the history of the uses there? What are, what are the major uses that have occupied the waterfront there? Well, that's a, that's a good question. Um, as a longtime Whatcom County resident, I mean, we've moved all over the nation, but I'm from here and um, and now we're back about 10 years. And well, several things, like I said, was that, that we have this sector, this area called Cherry Point, which is, um, I mean, if you take the, the border or the waterfront in Whatcom County, I'll start at the north. We're right at the Canadian border. So the city of Blaine, and that was a thriving commercial fishing sector and it's um, 
it's experienced a few, a few bumps, uh, but they're redeveloping that. We in the town of Blaine, there is a wonderful um, oyster producing. The, the bay had been polluted, and it got cleaned up and certified to be oyster producing for the whole year, rather than just a few months out of the year. So that company. I keep telling them they're the leavening agent that's going to put this town of Blaine on the map. And they are doing well, this restaurant, Drayton Harbor Oyster Company, even amidst the COVID, they've, they've, they've managed to stay alive and thrive. Um, but then further south from that is this Cherry Point sector, which is this big deep water port. And it has the two refineries and Intelco, which is an aluminum producing or refining company. And then the, there's some um, Ferndale, which, but we also have a large um, Native American sector here called Lummi Nation, and they are about 6,000 residents, and they are really doing great work to support their, their people and their, their um, identity. And they're, they're, got a great governance system and and a college. We also have four higher education facilities here, um, Western Washington University, Whatcom Community College, Bellingham Technical College, and um, Northwest Indian College. So, and there's seven or eight school districts. Um, I think the population of Whatcom County is something like 300,000, so... So it's not, but Bellingham itself is about a hundred thousand. Um, we also are the southern terminus of the Alaska Marine Highway System. So the ferry, the s southern terminus here is in Bellingham, and so um, you know there's there's tourism, there's definitely hospitals in the medical arena, but also. Um, and cross-border trade is a big is a big issue with the um, Canada. However, with COVID, that's been reduced significantly, which is very tough for our charter boats and our um, passenger and broker sectors of our of our coalition. Those guys have just been slammed. Um, People did fly here from all over the world to, we are called the gateway to the San Juan Islands. Have you heard of the San Juan Islands? Oh, yeah. I, I went to school in Seattle, so okay. I, was, I was fortunate enough to explore that region. It's quite beautiful. Fabulous. And so all of our, the, you know, recreational boating sector is, is huge. Um, but, and I'm on this island, I said, in the San Juans right now, and We've been out crabbing a little bit and recreational crabbing, and there's so many boats down or in the waters around around us here because they're not able to go to Canada. Yeah, that's that creates a lot of issues. I know we had um, our gentleman John in um, in Salcedo talk about how um, the tourism sectors of the town have had to shut down as I'm sure most of them. So these towns that really focus on tourism are really struggling, but that 
the other industrial uses there are still still going and still going strong and able to help the community in a time of need. I was just wondering if you've seen that in your region at all, where, you know, between some of the tourism uses you mentioned and then the other industrial uses, are you, is there still um, work happening? Is people still trying to, trying to get it going through COVID despite all these obstacles? Yes, good question. Um, we do have in, you know, I mentioned that we have six or seven sectors within our, our coalition, and one of them is shipbuilding and our shipyards and boat building. And we have um, two or three fairly large aluminum fabricating boat businesses. One of them is called All American Marine, and it is it's just booming. Um, they have tons of business and they're producing large vessels. Probably their con I'm not sure exactly. I think their contracts were before COVID really manifested itself as drastically as it has, but they're constantly um, launching and christening these gorgeous big um Oh, like ferry boats that go all over, they're shipped all over the nation or, um, you know, protective services boats. Um, and they, they develop a hybrid engine. So it's not just fuel, fossil fuel consuming, it's also electric. So they're, they're on the, they're totally on the move. And then, um, another company is NTG Fabrication. We are also, the launching pad for a lot of folks to fish in Alaska, uh, commercial fish in Alaska. So, and as you know, Bristol Bay, Alaska, the runs are really strong and thriving. And um, we're, that run is just winding down and it blasted through its predictions so the volume is still is quite large, but this one company in Bellingham built this year twelve Bristol Bay gillnet boats, and they're all fabulous. So that company is still going. But anytime you have a boat building business, the ripple, you know, the um, ancillary industries are all doing well. The fiberglass, the electrics, the everything, they're all. The, the, our sector is doing pretty well, except for the charter sector. That's that's great. I'm glad you I'm glad you covered about how the ancillary industries are are also you know doing well because of this. And I think that's a great argument for keeping you know waterfronts diverse in their use and not trying to you know monetize the economy. Um, it's, I mean, thank you so much for talking with us today, Deb. This has been really insightful. Um, I think the only other, I just a uh, curiosity, something that I asked uh, the gentleman Roland from New York about resilience and how that has uh, peaked, ha has, has become much more, I guess, um, the word for it is, you know, popular and, and much more common rhetoric. And uh, I know on the West Coast, they're, they're known for that. Um, so I'm just wondering if, uh, if you, in the five years that you guys have been an organization and working, have you noticed, you know, an uptick in the talk about resilience and using these different strategies to protect the, the waterfront? 
definitely. I call it um, all hands on deck approach. I actually have commercial fish myself. And so when there is a situation, it's all hands on deck. And I think the the people that get into this sector are just by their very nature willing to pinch hit and pivot and um, make do because when you're out on the grounds and your boat breaks down, you don't have, you know, somebody to call and <laughs> come and get you. You have to make it work. And so that that um, willingness to stick it out, to um, collaborate, cooperate, coordinate has really, I think, done this sector in good stead. One clear example of this is um, in our community, well, nationwide, um, the seafood industry, the commercial seafood harvesting and processing has also been hit hard with two aspects. One is the you know, keeping their workers safe, the health aspects. But the second one is the market. With the collapse of the international markets, um, gosh sake, seven, and then the uh, restaurants and the food service, 70% of the, con- of the seafood consumed in this nation is consumed in the food service sector. That's schools, banquets, restaurants, cruise ships, that's gone. So that sector was totally crashed, I mean, crushed, hurt. So what we're doing is setting up the infrastructure to support what we call direct sales, you know, direct off the boat sales, um, so that our fishermen and our consumers, our public can come down and access this abundance of our waters um, and take it back and cook it at home. That's amazing. That's innovative. That's just thinking differently. You know, you guys are stuck in a situation. You got to think outside the box. Um, well, thank you, Deb. That's this has been really great uh, touring around Whatcom County and talking with you about this. Um, I believe that's that's all the time we have for right now. Um, is there anything else you wanted to add to everything you've said? You want to ta- um, plug your website or anything for people to visit to learn more? Sure. I really would um, encourage you to visit our website and it's uh, whatcomworkingwaterfront.org. And then specifically check out our membership page, which highlights the members within the different, um, you know, the six different sectors. We're pretty proud of these people who um, work hard each and every day and, um, you know, drive the forklifts and build the boats and, and keep us, keep our harbors safe and operating. And I just, um, as Ashley mentioned, we are in a beautiful part of the, of the world. And I'm sitting here on this island looking out at water and gorgeous Mount Baker still capped in its white winter blanket. <laughs> oh, that sounds great. You're making me a little jealous, but thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Deb. That was really well said. It's been wonderful talking to you. Um, I wish you luck, and I, I hope we'll keep in contact. Thank you. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you for listening to our show. You can learn more about the National Working Waterfront Network by going to www.nationalworkingwaterfronts.com. 
That is all lowercase, all spelled out. If you live in the Texas region or want to know more about the Sea Grant programs that cover the entire country, please visit us at texasseagrant.org. All spelled out, all lowercase. And be sure to subscribe to the American Shoreline Podcast Network wherever you get your pods. Music